to the Discover Church Podcast. It is our prayer that what you hear today is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. I'm really excited about what we're going to be talking about today. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to also be in Matthew chapter 4, where we're going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I just love the idea of the wild. When I was walking around this week, I was asking different people, what, when you hear the word, word wilderness, what do you think of? And, and just because of our economy, just because of where we leave, live, a lot of people were saying, when I hear the word wilderness, I think of a forest. I think of a jungle. And so what we're going to be talking about is the wild, the wilderness, uh, the biblical wilderness, uh, and, and the spiritual wilderness, and the theological idea of the wilderness, the wild. And just so you know, for ancient Mesopotamians, when they heard the word wilderness, what they thought of was the desert. That was their wilderness, inside of this desert. And the word, word wilderness means an uninhabitable place. It's a place that you can't live because it will kill you. Unless you have some kind of divine outside help, you're going to die. And so if you're taking notes, we're just going to get right into it. The first note is you cannot survive the wilderness. It is impossible to survive the wilderness. It will kill you. And it's not just that there's no water in the desert. There is water in the desert. It's just not enough to sustain you. You can find water, you can cut down a cactus. I've watched all those things. I've watched Bear girls drink his own urine, all that stuff, right? You can find water in the desert. It's just not gonna be enough for you to survive for a long period of time. There's gonna be wells, but they're not gonna go deep enough. There's gonna be water, but it's gonna be too shallow and tainted. And it, again, it's not gonna be enough to sustain you. There are creeks sometimes in the desert. Mount Sinai was a desert mountain. And when it would rain, the water would rush down from the mountain and create a creek, like a creek bed in the middle of the desert. But that would dry up in an instant without warning. The creek would be there one second and then instantaneously gone the next. You just cannot depend on it. And so Deuteronomy, is an interesting book. It's a series of sermons by Moses. Many of us know Moses. He was the one that, that God rose up to, to set the Israelites free from their slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And then out of their slavery, Moses led the Israelites through 40 years in the wild. And so Deuteronomy is towards the ends of Moses's life and he's connecting all the dots for the Israelites and saying, because we've gone through these things, let's not forget what we've gone through, how then should we live? And so he's kind of reflecting on the wilderness and saying, this is how we should live. So Deuteronomy chapter eight, starting in verse one, this is gonna be the foundation of what we're kind of talking about this morning. It says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing will not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciples his son, the Lord God disciples you. 
So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest... When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, test you to do good in the end. Thus says the word of the Lord. So here's what you need to know is Israel spent 40 years in devastating wilderness. What does that mean? It means during the day, it was searing heat and no shade. You could not escape. And at night, it was devastatingly cold and you could not find shelter. That's what they went through. There was, there was nothing to eat. There was nothing but thorns and thirst. And as bad as that was, centuries later, there is a book written to the Hebrews. It's the book of Hebrews, and it's written to people who lived in Greece and people who lived in Rome. These people might not ever experience the wilderness as these people experience. You and I might not ever physically walk through the desert unless we do so on purpose as tourists. And so these people likely that are reading this letter in Hebrews will never experience the wilderness, physical wilderness, the way the Israelites experienced it in the desert. So Hebrews 3, 8 and 15 says, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. As it is said, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. So what they're saying is, the writer is saying is, as you go through the wilderness, do not harden your hearts but see the work that God is doing. In other words, even the Hebrews in a time of running water and all the things and all the roads that they had that the ancient Israelites did not, says as you go through the wilderness, implying that they will go through a wilderness. What does this mean? This means that you and I in America, centuries apart from the book of Hebrews, will experience a wilderness. In fact, spiritually, theologically, your life is a wilderness. It is a wilderness. You will never actually in this world be able to meet your deepest needs. You will never actually be able to fulfill the needs of your soul. None of that's going to come out of this world. More than that, because of the sufferings and troubles and difficulties of this life, you are going to die here spiritually before you die physically. Welcome to Discover Church. More than that, listen, that's what the Bible is saying. How does that happen for us? How do we die here? How is this life a wilderness? Well, when you think of groundwater, 
When you walk through the physical wilderness, it's not enough to satisfy. In this world, there are people looking for water and they're going to groundwater that will not sustain them. Think of it, people have told you that if you get the right job and you got your dream job, you've had it for a year and now you're questioning whether or not you chose the right major. If this really was something that you were passionate about. People told you when you, like to have a family in a relationship, that's what's really fulfilling. And so then you get, you tie your soul to another human being and you realize that that is a fast track to sanctification. That when there's problems, you can't just leave. And all of a sudden, you know, this relationship that you thought would utterly fulfill you really becomes something that shapes and grows you. Or think about the idea of achievement or professional achievement. They will never satisfy. They just don't go deep enough to fulfill your greatest longing. In life, just as in the deserts, we have creek beds that are there for a second and gone the next. Things that we love that were taken from us by betrayal. Things that we love that were taken from us by bankruptcy. Injuries in our life that we have to deal with our whole life that we were not expecting. Sudden death in our life that really changed the way our hearts and our minds think. These things that were there one second and gone the next. When the Bible says that life is a wilderness, it's saying that in this life, no matter who you are, inevitably, you're going to have some suffering. There's going to be resources that are unable to satisfy and fulfill you. So you cannot survive the wilderness. But number two, if you're taking notes, you can't survive without the wilderness. So you can't survive within it and you cannot survive without it. There is just no way to survive without the wilderness, despite the dreadful wilderness and the way the Bible talks about it. That's always where you meet God. Everyone seems to have an encounter with God in the wild. Jacob had two of his great encounters when he saw the, you know, the stairway to heaven and the angels ascending and, and descending, where, where he wrestled with God. Both those things happened in the wild. Moses, when he saw the burning bush, was in the wild. Moses, on top of Mount Sinai, was in the desert. It was in the wild when he saw these things. Israel was taken into the wilderness and given the law of God, a way to relate to God. Hagar met God in the desert. Elijah meets God in the wilderness. And I love this about John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, I'm going to go prepare the way for the soon to come Savior. What John the Baptist does is he goes and lives and preaches in the wild. And so you hear about this crazy preacher that everybody wants to go see, but in order to hear him and hear his message, you have to go into the wilderness to hear it because that is where you encounter God. So the wild is something that, that might destroy us, but yet at the same time, you may never encounter God without it. That all of us go through something. And practically speaking, some of the most boring people you will ever meet are the ones that have lived charms lives. You know, they don't know their own heart. They don't have a sense of adventure. They just don't have that grit. And maybe they're too safe. And they're just not interesting people. That's all I'm saying. But what is it that basically turns somebody into something creative? What makes somebody remarkable? What makes them noteworthy in life? What makes them somebody you're like fascinated to hear their stories? It's the wild. It's the wild that does that for us. I came across an article in the New York Times. It was written in 2006. It's a weird article. It's called America's Favorite Pastime. And, and what the author is trying to connect with America's Favorite Pastime is that we like to plan our children's futures, that we obsess with it. But it's talking about in 2006, there were these new websites that came out. They're hard to say. One has an X, a Y, and a Z in the name, so I don't know how to pronounce that. 
system, but they're basically the eBay of genetic material, sperm banks and eggs. Like you go on there, you go to these premier websites and you pay tons of money to basically get genetic material that you wouldn't get from the, the schmuck that you lured into your bedroom. So you are basically crafting and handpicking a child that, is, that has been genetically modified to look great and to be intelligent. And that's what these people do. That's what you can do on this website. In fact, you cannot donate your genetic material. See how PG I'm making this. You can't donate that stuff unless you're at least five foot nine. So that eliminates some of y'all right there. So apparently, if you're not tall, the world don't need you. Anyways, it's really weird. Really weird stuff. So, so that, that's what you could do. You can go on there and figure this stuff out. In fact, in the Harvard Crimson, which is the newsletter for the Harvard University, somebody took out an ad and said they would give a woman $50,000 if she was a Harvard graduate for her egg. Thinking, man, obviously genetics have to do with you getting into Harvard, and so I'll pay $50,000 for a woman's egg. In the Chicago Maroon, which is for Chicago University, a man put $35,000 in an ad, said, I'll give $35,000 for an egg from somebody who is very healthy, very intelligent, very attractive, and most of all, very happy. $35,000. And according to a Harris poll, 40% of American parents, given the opportunity, would take it to genetically modify their children's appearance or their intelligence. They would make that happen. But the author of this article rightly points out that maybe, just maybe, it is not genetics that make a person great and the problem with all that is what if it's experience more than nature that makes us great? We've all overlooked the fact that mediocre looks are what spur people on to be creative people. That uh, ugliness is the mother of genius. That's where that stuff comes from. And in fact, if you look at world figures, historically world figures, people that we're inspired by in ancient history, you will be shocked. The number of them whose parents died before they were the age of 12. So if you're a helicopter parent, pencil that in, okay? Make sure that that happens for your child if you really want to boost them in some way. But, but on the most common sense level, it's the wild. It is not genetics that make you who you are. You don't ripen unless you're bruised. And greatness cannot grow unless the ground has been plowed. And so the Israelite story is our story. So God has the, you know, the Israelites are in slavery for 400 years. Moses has risen up. They're emancipated from slavery. They are legally free from slavery. And God leads them through a series of miracles to the promised land. They see the promised land. They see its inhabitants. They see the work that now their freedom entails. And they say, you know what? I'd rather go back to slavery. At least in slavery, everything was provided for us. And so they'd rather go back to slavery. And what has happened in that moment is God had taken the Israelites out of slavery, but he had not taken the slavery out of the Israelites. So immediately God leads them into 40 years of the wilderness where the slavery is taken out of them. And so now they're ready to be free people. And so for many of us, that relates to us on a collective level. Let me just say this as Christians. We read what Jesus has done for us. 
that every law was utterly fulfilled. He takes those 10 commandments, he elevates them to a point, like if you, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, how about you don't lust after a woman? He takes that and he elevates it to a place where we couldn't possibly be obedient to it. And Jesus says, yet I've obeyed them all for you. And as Christians, we see our freedom in Christ and we get up just to the edge of what our responsibility as free people requires, that we gotta love people we don't wanna love that we got to serve people we don't relate to, that we got every reason to, to not do something, but the Bible compels us to love the unlovable. Actually, you know what we should do is we should just go back to legalism. Because at least in legalism, the laws didn't require for me to love them. And so we go back. On a practical level, personal level as human beings, the way we're caught up in slavery and God gets the slavery out of us is maybe... You know, there might be a high percentage of us that grew up with one critical parent, that one parent that was never satisfied. No matter what you did, they were never pleased. And so then you kind of grew up and you had all these distortions in your life, those distortions that say you have to work hard to please others. You were, you're an overachiever or, or you're a workaholic and you're sensitive to criticism. When somebody criticizes you, it's like the end of the world. Or, or maybe you're afraid of commitment, but you got all these things. And all of a sudden you encounter the gospel and there's a part of the gospel that says in Jesus, God doesn't see your sin, he sees his son. And so no matter who you are, you're a son or a daughter of God. And he says, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And you say, well, that is the affirmation I've been looking for. That's the grace I've been longing for. And so you give your life to Christ and you become a Christian. And now you have a new status that you are a child of God. Now are all your problems over? No. Things have gotten better for sure, but are all those problems over? They're not. Because there's still a little part of you that keeps your soul on these other things instead of putting your soul on the rock, putting your soul on the re reality of who God says you are. Most of your life is still sand and you don't know that until a storm comes along and shows that to you, that in fact you haven't shifted those things over and that's what happens in the wild. All that sand is wiped away, that wilderness training comes your way. Problems and trials and you realize, oh man, I'm still suffering from these things. I haven't moved my identity over to Jesus and something comes your way and something that's really important gets taken away. And your life is shattered, it's devastated and you are shaken to your foundation. And you're shocked just how much your joy and your hope and your identity was not actually on Jesus, but it was on something else. It wasn't on what Jesus has done for you, what God says about you, but now you can clearly see that that wasn't the foundation of your life. And so you pray more than you used to. You read the Bible more than you used to. You, you seek love from other believers more than you used to. You seek counsel more than you used to. And as a byproduct, you love more than you used to. You give counsel more than you used to. And the whole time that as you are doing these things, you are drawing strength from God. You are drawing love from God. You're drawing life in a whole new way. Because joy in Christ isn't just the knowledge of what Christ has done, it's when we connect our bodies to what Christ has done and that happens in the wild. So my question to you is, are you ready to go into the wild? Because as a church, we are intentionally going to go into the wild together through 21 days of prayer and fasting. 
Now, if you're just hearing about this, we've been talking and kind of teasing about it for a few weeks now. If you're just hearing about it, there's plenty of resources to help you. We're starting this tomorrow, so you've got time, but we're going to be doing this together. We're going to be doing this together, but here's the deal. Uh, this is why this matters. Jesus goes up into the Mount, what we call the Mount Transfiguration, where uh, the, he's revealed his deity to a few of his disciples who were up there, and they decide, hey, let's build tents, let's build tabernacles, let's stay up here forever, and Jesus says, no, there's work to be done goes back down to the bottom of the mountain. There's another group of disciples down there and there's a child who's having seizures and they're trying to heal this child. And they can't do it. They've done it before, but they can't do it. And Jesus comes down, immediately heals this child and they look to Jesus and they say, why, can't we, why couldn't we do this? Jesus says in Matthew 17, 21, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And then James, the brother of Jesus, writes that you do not have because you do not ask. What does any of that mean? Plainly, on its face, if you really read it, it means that there is a specific power from God. There is a specific experience with God that we do not have unless we pray and fast. That there might have been an experience that your whole life as a Christian you've not had because you've not decided that you were going to pray and fast unless you willfully go into the wild. So we're gonna pray and fast as a church for 21 days. Some of us are fasting from foods. Some of us are fasting from certain types of foods. Malik and I went over our grocery list this week because we're like, we can't just order what we've normally gone out and got because we're fasting from certain things. And so we gotta plan that. Some of you are gonna go home and throw away all the sugar. All the meat, all the dairy, so you're not tempted, right? My kids are going to hate living at home this week. So, so some of us are doing that. Some of us are fasting from technology. That might mean video games. That might mean, you know, this thing, that thing, whatever that means for you. It might be your phone. Get an old school flip phone for 21 days. Some of us are fasting from different things over uh, different weeks for three weeks. Some of us are doing an influence fast, You'd be shocked how many things you didn't think influenced you actually influenced you. Things like the news that you watch, the music that you listen to, the shows that you watch, social media. How about this, your friends. Some of you, you're gonna find a way to be busy the next 21 days so you're not hanging out with the same friend group that is influencing you in different ways. And what you're gonna find is parts of your soul that weren't on the rock. And what I believe is gonna happen as we go into the wild together is God's gonna use this time to take us to a place of intimacy and clarity that we simply do not have right now. And all fasting is, is a self-denial for a specific period, for a specific period of time, for a specific purpose. You need to let the, the Spirit guide you to how long you're going to do this and for what reason you're going to do this. For some of us, we're just simply fasting to reset our minds, to clean the filter that got gummed up, to make sure that we're not going to go into this next season of life with the barnacles of bitterness that attached themselves to us over 2020, and we need to scrape off. And so that's what we're going to be doing through prayer and fasting. But you have to let the Spirit give you your reason, and there are many biblical reasons to fast, just so you know. Uh, they fasted in times of war in the book of Judges. They fasted for repentance in Jonah, the Ninevites. When they were confronted with, you know, God's going to destroy you unless you change your ways. They fasted. They fasted when facing danger in Ezra. They fasted uh, uh, Esther. When she, had a, she needed courage, she would ask people to fast for her. When she needed to make a big decision, she asked people to fast with her. They fasted in times of grief. 
David fasted when Saul died, and they fasted as an ultimate denial of flesh. They fasted for spiritual power in Mark 9. Paul fasts for wisdom in Acts 14. They set aside themselves for holiness in 1 Corinthians through a fast because God is more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. That'll preach. Uh, they fast for answered prayer in Acts chapter 10. They fasted again for mourning. Uh, Daniel would fast, and after his fast, he had a vision from God. They fasted for spiritual revelation in Exodus. They fasted for spiritual recuperation in 1 Kings. All the reasons to fast. The Bible is filled with fast. People setting themselves aside in the wild for God. In life, no one is exempt from the wilderness. We're all going to go through it. In fact, Jesus was not exempt himself. That's what brings us to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. He's baptized. He comes out of the water. A voice comes from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the very next thing that happens is the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. The very next thing that happens. Before Jesus ever called anyone to be a disciple, before he even did his first miracle in Cana, turning the water into wine, before any of that happened, he went through the wilderness. So we're going to read about it together. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That seems to happen. And the tempter came and said to him, now watch how many times the devil says the word if here. And said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written. Now again, watch how many times Jesus answers with, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy. We read that earlier. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Uh, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now listen, for those of you who are deciding that you're gonna fast, listen, there's plenty of resources. If you go to 21days.discover.church, we've got some ideas for things for you to fast from. There's a prayer guide on there for adults. It's really great. Different kinds of prayers, different outlines of how to pray. There's even something for kids on there that we're quite proud of, but go on there. But put it on your calendar that you're going to fast and then you're going to get attacked. It's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. You're going to decide that you're going to fast and somebody's going to be like, you're going to fast from Facebook and somebody's going to say, did you not see that such and such put this picture on Facebook? And you're going to be tempted to go and look at it and you're going to realize you deleted the app. Somebody's going to start spreading lies about you when you start fasting. They're going to say, you got a problem. You're going to be fasting from food, and I promise you next week Chick-fil-A is going to open in Franklin. And you're going to be like, what is going on? And it's simply just because you decided to fast, and that's worth it. So, so remember how many times Satan said, if. Now what Satan's going to do most of the time when he challenges us 
is challenge our identity because attached to your identity is God's vision for your life. And attached to that vision is the provision for your life. If you don't know who you are, you will never live the life that God has called you to live. And if you know who you are and you live out the vision God gave you, he's gonna provide everything that you need. And all the devil has to do is get you to doubt your identity. Listen, I get attacked often. You know, I'll be driving, all of a sudden out of nowhere I'll think, I don't have what it takes. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not really helping anybody. And I begin to doubt my identity. When that happens, I get neutralized. And when I get neutralized, I can do good things. I just can't do great things. When I'm neutralized because of my self-doubt and my identity in God, I can help a person. I just can't help all the people that God has anointed us to be able to help. So that's what happens when I'm under attack. And and any vision that God has for your life is going to be way too big for you. You're going to need the spirit and you're going to need to be secure in your your identity. And you're going to need the word of God. And we're going to be talking a lot about the word of God next week. Some practical ways that we can get into our word. Because the devil doesn't want you to, to know who you are. He doesn't want you to know the calling on your, on your life. He doesn't want you to have the provision in your life. He doesn't want you to have the anointing in your life. And all he's got to do is to say, if you're this, if you're that, because you ain't. And then we begin to doubt ourselves. And, but Jesus was guided by the word. And again, don't miss next week. We need to be in the word. So tomorrow, we're entering 21 days of of, of prayer and fasting of self-denial for a specific purpose. And our lives will be shifted from the sand to the rock. And when God created the earth, and I love this, you need to understand when God created the earth, he didn't create for us the wilderness. God created for us a garden. And it was our sin. It was the evil in this world that created the wilderness. God created a garden. That's what God did for us. But it says in Isaiah 35 that one day in the future, all the deserts will bloom. But until that day comes, God's going to use the desert to make you bloom. Over and over again, he's going to use those things. Listen, we cannot live within the wilderness. We cannot live without the wilderness. How do we survive the wilderness that we're all going to go into and not come out bitter like everybody else, but come out changed, more connected to God than ever before? Here's what you need to understand. Anytime the wilderness is brought up in the Bible and somebody's going through it, it's always tied to us being the children of God. It's tied to sonship. It's tied to daughtership. Over and over again in the Bible, remember in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, it says, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carried his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Now again, you remember Matthew three seventeen. it says, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my son, my, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The very next verse says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Listen, our father uses the wilderness to prepare us as a parent prepares their children. Listen, I love my kids. There are tests in this world to weed out the weak. You know, you gotta pass the bar exam before they say you're good enough to be a lawyer. You gotta do well on your SAT so that a school will, will accept you. And here's the thing, love is based on how well you do on that test. Oh, you passed the test, we love you. You can come into our university. But when it says parents, when we see weakness in our children, we test them to, because we already love them. So if there's procrastination in my child, I put obstacles in their path so that procrastination gets out of them. 
if there's self-doubt in my child, I'll put obstacles in their path. And, you know, as a good coach and a football team, they're constantly scheming up ways to do drills, to prepare. No team wants to run three miles a day. Nobody wants to do that, but it prepares them to win the game. It is a preparation that God is doing for us. And ultimately, ultimately, God is going to be with us as our father. And nowhere does that become more apparent that God is our father sustaining us and carrying us than in the wilderness. And here's the deal. You're not supposed to look at Jesus going into the wilderness as an example. You're not. Because if, it's, if Jesus is just an example of how to survive the wilderness then it's just another standard that none of us are going to live up to. But what if Jesus went through the wilderness for you? And the desert, there's nothing but thorns and thirst. When Jesus was on the cross, there was thorns and thirst. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? He was the only child of God in all of eternity that was ever abandoned by God in the wilderness. Why? Because he took what I deserved. In that moment, Jesus drank the full cup of the wrath of God, and there is not one drop left for me. If you're facing hardship, if you're facing brokenness, if you're facing devastation, I don't know why you're facing those things, but I know why you're, I know what it isn't. It isn't that God doesn't love you. God loves you, no matter what you're facing. And I promise you, God can use those things to shape you, to mold you, to move your soul more to the rock. Jesus did that for you and I. Jesus took it all. When we go through the wilderness, this is correction. This is a wake up. It's, It's God drawing you out to draw you in. It is fatherly love. We're gonna encounter that love over these next 21 days, but you can encounter that love right now in this moment because God is your father. You don't need to run from here and get cleaned up and try to come back for his approval. When he sees you, he sees his son. He doesn't see your sin. You are his beloved in whom he is well pleased. And those things that you're walking through life in the wild that we all experience, even Jesus, God is using those things to make us more like the person that he's created us to be. And because God is my father and because I know that, because I've walked through the wild with him, when I mess up, it's not, nobody call dad. When I mess up, it's somebody needs to call dad. When I fail, I don't run from God, I run to God because he is my father. If you've been living your whole life thinking the things that you've experienced in this broken, confusing world is because God hates you and is smiting you. Listen, God's been pursuing you as if you were his only child that he's lost. And his desire is to take you as you are and tell you what I did thousands of years ago on that cross was for you. When I died and was buried and rose from the grave, it was for you. I cut loose the power of sin over your life so you could have eternal life that doesn't begin when you die someday, but starts right now. It starts today in this moment. And as you walk through these things, I will never leave you or forsake you. You don't have to waste your hurts waste your pain. I am using what this world is causing in your life for you to bloom. And that's a relationship that you can have in this moment. It's a relationship that God loved you so much that he chose to die for you. 
And if that's you right now and you're ready to make that decision, I wanna lift you up in prayer. Father, I pray for those in this moment who are saying, Father, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I'm in need of a different way. Father, I wanna go where you asked me to go. I wanna do what you asked me to do. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for those sins in my life. But Lord, I wanna turn from the way that I've been living and I wanna turn to your ways. Father, I pray that as they say these things, as they confess these things, as they ask these things and believe these things, Lord, that their soul would become intertwined with the eternal soul of the universe, yours. That their body would be filled with every mystery of who, who you are, that everything they need to live the Christian life would be in them, that your last words would be their first words. It is finished in this moment. That as they walk through the wilderness, those wildernesses will take on a whole new meaning as we go with you into the wild. Lord, I pray that you begin a work in them that cannot be stopped by any wilderness they face. Nakedness, famine, sword, angels, demons, nothing will be able to stop the love that you have for them. Well, we thank you so much for the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his mighty name. Amen, amen. Can we give God some glory this morning? <laughs>